Romans 8, 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. Just to follow up on the announcement that Marianne just mentioned about the family conversation today, just two things to say. One, there is lunch provided, and so that's a reason to come. But the second and the more important reason is we're talking about waiting for children, people who've experienced miscarriage, infertility, maybe just wondering, am I ever going to have kids? And some of you don't feel like that's an issue for you, like you don't feel like you're waiting for children for whatever reason, but someone near you is. And as a church, we're meant to walk with each other, care for each other, support each other. And so these family conversations are for all of our church, even if the issues we're talking about don't feel as immediately relevant to you at this moment in your life. So please, if you can, join us today. It's going to be an important conversation. We'll be hearing from lots of people in our community and uh, really having some time to process together. So hope you can come. Now, Romans chapter 8, the passage you just heard read. For the next four weeks, we're going to be in a sermon series looking at Romans chapter 8. And this letter, Romans, was written by a man called Paul. He was a church planter and a leader in the early Christian church. And he was writing to Christians who lived in the big city of Rome. Now, Rome was a city in which it was really hard to be a Christian. Two reasons. One, there was persecution. There was actually hostility and opposition to people who followed Jesus. And because of that, another reason it was really hard to be a Christian was what you might call temptation. In the midst of such a big, wonderful city, there were all kinds of temptations that sought to pull people away from a life following Jesus. And if you're being persecuted, if being Christian's hard, it's sometimes pretty easy to see those temptations and to want to give in. So what you have here is Christians in the city of Rome trying to follow Jesus and facing all kinds of hardship as they do so. And so Pastor Paul writes them a letter and he's trying to help them follow Jesus in their city. He's trying to help them live out what it means to be a Christian. And what I love about Romans is this Paul's writing to people who are living in the city and he's trying to help them follow Jesus. He gives them theology. He gives them truth that they need. And if they have this truth, if they see this theology, it'll equip them to face anything that comes their way, any kind of suffering, any kind of achievement, any kind of failure, and to do so with joy and hope and poise and faithfulness to God. And so, some of you here today are exploring Christianity. You're wondering, what does it mean to follow Jesus? There's almost no better place in the Bible to look than the book of Romans. For others, you are following Jesus and it's hard. What you need today, what you need is theology. Thinking rightly, knowing rightly God and what he's doing in the world to be equipped to face anything. 
So today we begin that series and we're looking at these couple of verses in the middle of Romans 8. And there's four things I want to show you. First, there's something that we need to know. Second, there's something that we need to experience. Third, we'll talk about how to experience it. And then fourth, if you experience it, how will your life change? So something you need to know, something you need to experience, how to experience it, and if you do, how your life will change. So first, what is it that you need to know? Now, we just heard the passage read, and in each of the four verses, Paul says almost the same thing. He says, beginning verse 14, you are children of God. Then down at the end of verse 15, the Spirit has brought about your adoption to sonship. Verse 16, the end, we know that we are God's children. And then verse 17, if we're children, then we're heirs. In each of the four verses, what's Paul saying? To be a Christian is to be a child of God. He's laying out the doctrine of adoption. This is the theology that undergirds this part of the letter. To be a Christian is to be a child of God. It's to be brought into God's family. John Owen, who pastored a church in Oxford years ago, said that adoption, being a child of God, this, he called it, the fountain privilege of the Christian. It's the thing from which all the other joys and benefits of your salvation flow. Adoption is the fountain, it's the source, it's the center of all the joys and privileges of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The doctrine of adoption. This is what you need to know. To be a Christian is to be a child of God. So let's just spend a few minutes. I don't have a ton of time this morning, but just a couple of minutes. What does it mean to be adopted into God's family? What does it mean to be a child of God? First thing it means, when you're adopted, you get a new name. You get a new identity, what you might call a new status. In Paul's time, the first century, adoption was an incredibly intense legal process by which the moment someone was adopted, they were legally, authoritatively, and instantaneously transferred into a new family. That meant if you were poor and you were adopted into a wealthy family, you instantly became wealthy. If you had no land and you were adopted into a family with land, you had land. If your family were citizens, if your family had political power, you did. No matter what you had in your background, the moment you're adopted, you're brought into a new family, given a new identity, given a new status. Paul says that's what a Christian is. No matter what you bring from your past, no matter what shame and failure and hurt and pain and brokenness, whatever you carry, the moment you are brought into God's family, you have a new identity. Your name now is child of God. And you are entitled to all the rights and privileges of those who belong to God's family. A new name. Second thing Paul says, not only do we have a new name, but the other aspect of adoption which we want to bring out, you have access. You know, a child, no matter how important their parent is, a child can just run right in. You know, if someone's powerful, then you need to make lots of appointments and it takes a long time to meet with them, but not if you're their daughter or son. You just run right in and you don't have to polish yourself. You don't need to present yourself in any certain way. A child has access. And adoption means you have access to God just as you are, however you are, anytime, 
That's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, how do we begin? Our Father. We're speaking to Father. We have access. A new name, access. Third thing that adoption brings out, you're loved. You're loved. 1 John chapter 3 says, Behold, look at, see, consider what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called sons of God, that we get to be his children. Now, think about this. Parental love is unlike any other kind of love in the world. Because if you love a friend or maybe you have a romantic interest, someone you're falling in love with, you know that at some level, the reason you love that person, or at least the reason it starts, is because there's something about them that's lovely. There's something about that other person that you find attractive. Maybe they're beautiful, or maybe you have something in common, or maybe they're really smart or really nice, or whatever. You find something in them that's lovely. Parental love is different. You love a child just because you love them. See, in most human loves, performance precedes love. But in parental love, love precedes performance. You love them just because you love them. There's a book that we read at home. It's by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's a kid's book. It's called Just Because You're Mine, and it's about a dad squirrel and a kid squirrel. And in the book, the kid squirrel keeps asking, Dad, Dad, why do you love me? And he runs around really fast, and the squirrel, little boy squirrel says, do you love me, Dad, because I'm so fast? And Dad says, no, that's not why I love you. He climbs really high into the tree. Dad, do you love me because I'm such a great climber? No, that's not why I love you. Collects berries. Dad, do you love me because I'm so good at stashing all my secret berries? No, that's not why I love you. Dad, is it because I'm so handsome? No, not, that's not why I love you. So you get to the end of the book, and the dad says, you are a good climber, and you're very fast, and you're very handsome. But that's not why I love you. He says, I love you just because you're mine. Now, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author, is a Christian. And she, in that book, is laying out a theology of adoption. She's, in a kid's book, telling us that God loves you just because you're his. And friends, do you see what that means? That's the most secure kind of love in the world. Because if that father squirrel loves the baby squirrel because of something inherent in that squirrel's abilities, because they're fast or handsome or a good climber, then that baby squirrel is going to be insecure for his whole life. What if I stop being fast? What if I lose my good looks? What if I can't climb? But if my dad loves me just because he loves me, I'm safe. That's a love I can't lose. And do you not know, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when God is speaking to his people, he says, look, I loved you not because you were more powerful than the other nations, not because you were more numerous or because you were wise. But in Deuteronomy 7, God says, I loved you because I loved you. Just because you're mine. That's what adoption is. God sets his love on you prior to your performance. Not because of anything that you've done, but because you're his. It's just hanging there. <laughs> Ominously. Can I unplug it? You'll have to edit that out in the podcast. He loves you just because he loves you. Fourth thing about adoption, you're safe. 
Do you see in verse 17, Paul says we're heirs? An heir is someone who has an inheritance coming. That means that the future is going to be really good. It's going to be bright. And if you're part of God's family, if you're God's child, you're an heir. That means the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And Paul says, you're safe. Your future is secure. There's a feast coming and you're going to be okay. That's just a, a, that's, we're just scratching the surface of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be adopted, a new name, access, loved and safe forever. Do you know your adoption? But here's the next question. Why is it, why is it that even though you're loved, if you're a Christian, you're loved, you know that you're safe forever, you know that you're part of God's family, why is it that you don't live like it? Why is it that I don't live like it? We who know that God loves us, why is it that we move through our city with baseline levels of fear and anxiousness and restlessness? Why is it that even though we know we're safe forever, we can't handle criticism? And we get so defensive at even minor slights. Why is it that we know that even though we have an inheritance that means good things are coming, we can't stop overworking and keep connecting our identity to our achievements? And here's the answer. You know that you're adopted, but you don't really know it. Or said differently, you know it as an idea, but you're not experiencing it as a reality. And that's really what this passage is about. It's not just knowing that you're adopted, you need to experience it. And that's what verse 15 says. Look at verse 15 of our passage. Paul says, verse 15, the spirit you received doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your sonship, your adoption, and notice by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba. That term Abba, it's a term, if you were to go to Israel or other parts of the world today and walk around the streets, you'd hear little kids running around saying to their dads, Abba. It's a term that describes intense intimacy and closeness. It's our closest equivalent in English would be daddy or papa. Abba is spoken by a little child who knows their dad loves them and that they're safe with their father. It's the term that indicates this is a relationship from which I can never be separated. And Paul says to be a Christian is not just to know in your head that God is your father, but it's to so experience his fatherhood that we cry out, Abba. We feel his love. We sense that closeness. And you know, some of you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about. You've had moments, haven't you? Where maybe it's a worship service or maybe reading your Bible somewhere, maybe on a retreat, maybe in a really hard moment. But sometimes, even inexplicably, a sense of God as Father just comes piercing into your heart. And in that moment, you feel overwhelmed by His love, you feel totally safe. You know that no matter what comes, you're going to be okay. You feel joy in the fact that you're loved by him. And it feels real to you, like the most real thing in the world. What is that? That's Abba, Father. 
That's the glory of the Christian life, that in that moment you are experiencing God as Father. You're feeling it. And Paul says that's what we need. That needs to become the reality of our Christian life, saying to God, experiencing God as Abba. But as wonderful as that is, as important as that is, there's even something better in this passage. Because verse 15, Paul says, when you're experiencing God as Father, you say, Abba. You cry out in closeness and intimacy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in London in the 50s and 60s, gave an exposition on Romans 8 that changed my life. It's been so impactful to me. And when he got to these verses, he said, look, verse 15, we cry out to God, Abba. And he says, you know, it's a wonderful thing when you love somebody to tell them you love them, right? If you love somebody, you, you enjoy telling them, I love you. But Lloyd-Jones says, you know what's even better, what's even more wonderful than telling someone you love them? is hearing that person that you love say back to you, and I love you. That's the best feeling in the world. There's nothing like it. In verse 15, we say to God, Abba, you're close. I feel you. I love you. But look at verse 16. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In verse 16, God saying, yes, I am Abba, and you are my child. It's the voice of God himself by his spirit saying to us, I see you, I love you, I'm for you, and you're going to be okay. It's not just us telling God we love him, but him saying to us, you're mine, and I love you. And do you know, you can't live without a voice like that telling you that you're okay. We all in our lives, in the city, in our jobs, in our relationships. Every human being cannot live without a voice from the outside telling them, you're seen, you're loved, you're okay. And that's why we spend most of our time and energy trying to find some kind of validation or approval from another person or from our job or from our earthly parents or from our careers or from anything. Because we need a voice from the outside that says, you're safe. I see you. You're okay. I've got you. You're loved. And the doctrine of adoption means that God himself, when he looks at you, says you're loved, you're safe, you're mine, everything's going to be okay. That's what verse 16 means. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that you are God's child. I ask you this morning, do you know anything of this? Have you experienced your adoption? Not just do you know about it as an idea, but have you felt it? Do you live in the city? Do you live your life as a person who knows you are safe and loved and you have access and an identity that can never be taken away? Do you know it in your experience? You say, well, I want to. How can I? And here's the interesting thing. When you look carefully at Romans chapter 8. When we ask the question, how can we experience our adoption? The answer Romans 8 gives us is, well, it's a gift. There's actually nothing you can do to achieve your adoption. Verse 15 says, the spirit is the one who brings about our adoption. It's the spirit that does it. Verse 16, it's the spirit who testifies. Adoption is not something you achieve, it's a gift. It's something that you receive. 
So this is a bit of a paradox for us because on one hand we say, I want to know, I want to live in the world as someone who feels loved by the Father. But on the other hand, is there nothing I can do? And there's a clue in verse 17. Adoption is a gift. There's nothing you can do to achieve it. But there is something you can do that you might call it the posturing of your heart to receive it. And it's there in verse 17. Paul says, we are heirs of God and look, co-heirs with Christ. And that little phrase is the key to the whole thing. A person who's adopted is in Christ, a co-heir with Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is the perfectly loved son of the father. You see, Jesus is the ultimate son of God, the ultimate child of God. And when you look at the life of Jesus, we get everything we need to understand about our adoption. Think with me. Jesus, when he was just beginning his public ministry, when he was just starting, was baptized. And when he came up out of the water, there was a voice from heaven that rang out. And that voice from heaven said, this, Jesus, this is my beloved son. And in him I am well pleased. You see, in that moment, Jesus got literally, verbally, audibly, the thing that you have been living your whole life for. The affirmation, the voice from the outside saying, you're loved and you're safe and I'm, I'm proud of you. Like Jesus got it. And he lives his whole life in perfect relationship to God his Father. He lives his whole life always obeying him, always pleasing him, always reflecting his Father's love in the world. Perfect relationship. Abba. Then comes the night before Jesus' death. And Jesus is praying and he knows that in a matter of hours he's going to be on the cross dying. And Jesus kneels down in prayer that night and he says, Abba, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. The cup symbolizes God's judgment or his wrath that's going to be poured out because of sin. And Jesus is praying and he says, Abba, like dad, like in this moment of agony and pain, please spare me. Please take away from me the the intense suffering that I'm about to endure. And yet Jesus then says, Abba, Father, take the cup. Nevertheless, not what I will, but yours be done. And Jesus in that moment surrenders himself to sacrifice. And he willingly goes to the cross, knowing what's coming. And then the next morning, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus is dying. And something happened on the cross that had never, ever happened before in Jesus' whole life. Because as Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed again. But that time he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know that throughout all of Jesus' life, he prayed a lot. And that was the only time that Jesus ever prayed and didn't call God Father. He just called him my God. What's happening? On the cross, Jesus is dying as a substitute. Jesus is dying in your place. He lived the life that you should have lived. And on the cross, he was dying the death that you should have died. He was on the cross cut off so you could be adopted. He was forsaken so you never would be. 
He who had a perfect relationship with God, his father, in a sense, lost it because he was bearing the judgment that you deserved. And on the cross, because Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? You can be brought into God's family and know that you're safe forever. How do you experience your adoption? How do you experience God as father? In Jesus, by looking to him, by surrendering to him, by trusting him. You see, the more real the death of Jesus on the cross becomes to you, the more real your adoption will be to you. Because on the cross, Jesus was dying so you could be brought in. So you could become a child of God. So how do you receive your adoption? It's a gift. But it's a gift we receive by surrendering to Jesus. By looking to him, by resting in him, by trusting in him. By giving up and saying, have all of me. And now here's where I want to close today. You need to know your adoption. You need to experience it and you can in Jesus. And I want to draw out now as we close just two ideas. How will your life change if you experience your adoption? I mean, what, what does this produce? What are the implications of this incredible doctrine for the life of the follower of God? Two ideas. First, let's talk about obedience. Let's talk for a minute about obedience. Throughout the Bible, there's all kinds of rules or what the Bible calls laws, commands, that God gives to his people. You could think of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. You could think of the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. Things that God says to his people, this is how I want you to live. And for many Christians, maybe some of you here today, you really struggle with obedience. There are some parts of the Bible that you like, some parts that make you feel good, and you're like, yes, amen, I obey that. And there are other parts of the Bible where you're like, wait a second, God doesn't get to speak about that. He can't tell me what to do with that part of my life. And part of the reason why we as people struggle so much with God's commands and his laws is because we've been formed in the modern Western culture that tells us, this is in the cultural drinking water, no one should tell you who you are or how to live or what to do. You should look inside, whatever you feel, you live that out, you express that. That's how we're formed. And so as followers of Jesus, when we come to commands or laws or rules that we don't like, we say, well, I'm not sure I need to obey that part of it. Or we just suppress it. And that's why we live our Christian life with so much insecurity and so much joylessness. Because we're not actually allowing ourselves to feel the fullness of God's commands. But listen, the doctrine of adoption helps us here. Because if you understand that God is Father, if you understand that he loves you because you're his, that he loves you intensely and infinitely, then you begin to realize that his law, his commands, are not restrictions on your freedom. They're the foundation for it. I have a three-year-old at home, and that means there's a lot of rules in our house. There's a lot of law. Why? Because if I let my daughter do whatever she wanted, she'd be dead in about 15 minutes. Right? My law is not the opposite of my love for her. It's the extension of it. I'm not a perfect father, and yet I think most of the time, anytime I say no, or you can't, or you shouldn't, it's because at some level I want her to flourish. I want her to be happy and healthy and experience joy. 
Every single command of God is not a restriction of your joy and freedom. It's the foundation for it. God gives us commands because he longs for our joy. And you'll obey him to the, under, to the degree that you understand. These are not the laws or the commands of a harsh taskmaster. These are the commands of a loving father who cares infinitely more than you do about your own happiness. And not only would we have a new way of thinking about God's laws, but we'd also have a new motivation for obeying him. Some people obey God because they're terrified of him. We obey because we think if we don't, he's going to be really angry. And if we don't obey, he's not going to love us. And you relate to God out of fear. That's what verse 15 says. But when you understand God as father, that he loves you, that he's for you, you obey, but your obedience is now not fear of angering him. Your obedience is the joy of pleasing him. It's to look like the one who's loved you so much. A whole new motivation for obedience. It's one way your life will change. But there's a second. If you know that God is Father, what follows in your life is a deep peace. Deep peace. Peace that passes understanding. One of the hardest things as a Christian to make sense of is suffering. Because in our minds, what we say is something like, if God is all-powerful and he's all-loving, then why am I suffering the way that I am? Or why is there suffering in the world? I've been a pastor now for many years. I don't actually have a good answer to that question. Why is there suffering? And if I sat with you and tried to walk you through theology and you're suffering right now, at some level, you're not going to be satisfied. But here's what I can say. God doesn't always tell us why we suffer. There are certain kinds of suffering that to some degree are inexplicable. But he promises deep peace. Peace that passes understanding no matter what you go through. He promises it to those who are his children. That though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not need to fear any evil because he's right there with you. He's right there with you. C.S. Lewis watched his wife die of cancer and that experience had a profound impact on his faith as it would for any of us. And he processed shortly after she died feeling betrayed by God. And he said things like, I would knock on God's door and it would be like he was bolting the door and I was getting no answer. And Lewis said, why is it that in our suffering, God feels so far away? He's so absent when we feel like we most need him. Those are honest, raw questions for a person who's suffering. But then Lewis, as he continued to process and think out his theology, he said, you know, I still ask God these hard questions. Where are you? What are you doing? What's your purpose in this? And he said, I still get no answer. But it's become a different kind of no answer. He said... It is not anymore a locked door. It has become more like a silent and a very compassionate gaze. As though he shook his head, not in refusal, but in waving the question. Like, peace, child. You don't understand. When you suffer a lot, you understand that. There's some kinds of suffering that answers and Clarity is not forthcoming. But there's a peace that's much deeper than the answer you could get. 
And it's the peace that a child experiences when they know they're safe in their father's arms. And that's what Lewis realized. And I assure you today, for many of you, your greatest suffering is still to come. I wish that weren't the case, but it probably is. And when you face whatever comes, the question is, how are you going to make it? Are you going to be able to have a deep poise and a courage that's going to see you through anything? And what Romans 8 is saying is, yes, you can if you know and experience that you are a child of God, that you are infinitely loved by an infinitely gracious and an all-powerful Father who allows things and even sends things into the world that don't always make sense, but promises, I'm with you, I love you, I've got you, and you're going to be okay. If you experience that, if you know that in your deepest core, then you can say what John Newton said, everything is needful that he sends and nothing can be needful that he withholds. That's the kind of peace that comes from those who know that they are children of God. Let's pray. Our God, please help us today to experience a new motivation for obedience and deep, deep peace no matter what we face because we are your children. Today, help us not just to know our adoption as an idea, but to experience it as a reality. The Spirit testifies. So right now, we ask for you to do that, to testify with our spirit that we are your children. As we rest in Jesus, make your love for us real and felt. We pray this in Jesus' name.